Hey everyone, welcome to the Screen Sanity Podcast. I'm your host, Krista Bowen, co-founder of Start, where we help families raise happy and healthy kids in a world that is increasingly digital. We've had hundreds of conversations with parents everywhere who share that the number one battleground in their homes is screen time. And while we've learned that there is no easy button when it comes to parenting today's kids, there's also an unbelievable movement of parents who are stepping into the arena and fighting for their kids' hearts. Each episode, our guests will help us dive into some of the tensions families are facing and walk us through some of the conversations you'll want to have to prepare your kids for the road ahead. Welcome to Screen Sanity. Hey friends. Well, if there is anything that is for certain when it comes to being a parent in this digital world, it's that things are constantly changing and surprises are constantly popping up. And when those things happen, some of us are, you know, the kind of parents who love to dig into the research and get to the bottom looking for answers, while others of us just tend to fly by the seat of our pants and hope for the best. On those days when I am the latter, (laughs) I am grateful for the people who are digging into the research and trying to understand the impact Scream Time has on our kids' brains. Our guest today is one of those people. Susan Dunaway is a neurotherapist. She is the co-owner of Amin Neurocounseling, and she specializes in neurofeedback, which is a tool that helps the brain regulate attention, mood, and energy. Um, Her clients deal with everything from ADHD to anxiety to concussions, but a large part of her practice addresses screen-based issues. Susan, we are so glad that you are here joining us today. I just think this is going to be fun. I'm excited. Okay, so we have only been friends for a few short years, but in many ways, it feels like a decade. Susan, you are a neurotherapist. Mm-hmm. Is that for our listeners? The first time I heard neurotherapist, I actually thought you were a brain surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> And is much cooler than what I actually am. (laughs) So for somebody who actually hasn't heard of what a neurotherapist is, could you describe what your practice looks like? Sure. So a neurotherapist is, it's it's really a fancy title. Um, So by licensure, I'm uh, a licensed professional counselor. So, but as I was doing therapy, I was doing it more and more on kids. So I started doing therapy in the 90s. I am way older than you. Then I started working with younger and younger kids and trying to figure out kind of my theory. And I couldn't ever land on what I liked the best. And about that time, one of my colleagues was going through this thing called neurofeedback um, for an old brain injury that she had had. And in doing that, they asked her, because she was a, a therapist, whether she wanted to learn how to how to do this thing called neurofeedback. And so I asked if I could come along on the training because my thought had always been, we're blaming kids a lot for the things that they are doing, but we're never able to look into their brains to see you know, what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so I went out to this training at a, at a place called the Institute of Applied Neuroscience and learned about brainwave patterns and basically how to do physical therapy on the brain. So I, I now have this certification that is on, in neurofeedback that allows me to look inside brains every day 
and help people learn how to regulate their own brainwave patterns, which helps a ton with anxiety and depression and ADHD and behavioral issues. And so that's what a neurotherapist is. It's just a, an additional add-on training. But once I started that, it, it helped change lives so much that now that is probably 90% of my practice. I have some talk therapy, but most of my talk therapy also has neurofeedback components to it as well. So when you say you're able to look inside of people's brains and see their brain waves, is it like a a magic ball, magic eight ball that you're using or what (laughs) what piece of equipment? I want a magic a magic eight ball. <laughs> it's it's much less cool than that. I I put sensors, electrodes on the scalp okay. and read their their EEG brainwave patterns. Okay. Um and and then basically use math to be able to quote unquote see what's happening with the the ratios and amplitudes. It's it's all math, which kids really hate. <laughs> that, that I tell them that, that I really have to do a bunch of algebra to, to figure out what their brainwaves are telling me and that you do actually use math in real life. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear that when you're young, right? <laughs> awesome. So it's in the context of your private practice that you've been able to have a little bit of an up close and personal view of some of the shifts that are happening in our kids' brains as a result of the introduction of the digital revolution, which started, a lot of people say about 2012. Would you be willing to kind of walk us through some of the things that you've observed and maybe moments when you noticed, hey, the world is changing and it will never look the same? I noticed that kids started talking about their friendships differently. So they started, they talked about, I texted my friend, we texted about whatever. And then it started changing to, we talked. Mm -hmm. And and there was this shift where I went, wait, you talked with your voice or you talked texted? And they were like, oh, I, I talked texted. Well, if you talk to people now, they don't delineate. They don't say that anymore. Mm-hmm. They just say talked. And I just know that they probably texted. Mm-hmm. And so there was this weird shift that started happening in the way that they connected with each other. Um, and I watched anxiety go up and I watched them now come into the session with these devices. I watched sleep get worse. Um, I watched parents have no idea how to navigate this device that was now in their bedrooms and interrupting sleep. So I started watching all of these things. I started watching them not write anymore, but type. Mm -hmm. And as these things were happening, I watched insomnia go up and anxiety go up and depression go up. And I thought, these things are correlated. And so then I go to a, uh, a conference, a neurofeedback conference, uh, what probably was 2015. Mm-hmm. And I set in on one on how smartphones were interrupting brainwave patterns and how we have been taking brainwave data from the whole brain they have been doing these in-depth recordings of brainwaves since 19 since the 1960s and there's these databases of hundreds of thousands of brainwave patterns and what they noticed was once the smartphone was introduced um, and once it tipped that 50% of the population the brainwave patterns started changing and they had not changed in since the 60s and all of a sudden they started changing and they were correlating with what we were seeing with anxiety and depression specifically. And this light bulb went off where I was like, 
Oh, and of course, as a mom, I have two boys. My mama wings went out and I was like, I've got to keep this away from them as long as possible. Yeah. Well, I do think it is so overwhelming when you start looking at all of the data. And of course, as we, that's the gift of technology too, is that it allows us to collect Mm -hmm. so much more data than we even used to. And and right. so you have been a gift in our community and your ability to really take the research seriously, but then also to be able to communicate it in a more simple way for people like me who are just like, just tell me what to do, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I'd be curious, you know, at that point that you began speaking, what were you sharing? What was your battle cry or your rally cry? Was it to keep kids mostly off of screens until as as long as possible to delay? It really did. It depended on the age of the kid. And so what I wanted to do for all parents, because most of the time, of course, parents have kids of, of different ages and interact with them differently in their professions as well. I wanted them to get an idea of how it impacted the brain and some of the brain areas that I was most concerned about and the things that it delayed the most. So what I ended up doing was focusing on, by the time you launch them, what do you want them to have? Yes. Um, Critical thinking skills, creativity, empathy, good judgment, some morals, a compass, those types of things that seem to be all parents want these things. They want their kids to be able to be self-sufficient. They want them to be happy. You know, those things that all parents want. And then I talked about how a screens can hijack that mm. and how instead we need to keep these things in our targets. How do I get my kid to be more empathetic? So yeah, screens will will hijack empathy for sure. And we can just talk about that. But what if we talk about what do you do to create an empathetic child? And my theory was if we concentrated more on how do we develop these things in our kids, then naturally we're going to do things that aren't necessarily just go to your room and, and stare at a screen or just be on your phone on social media. If you want to, to make empathy in your child, then maybe your family is going to go volunteer someplace. Well, what I love, and I feel like what's always been aligned about your approach with START is that, you know, beginning with the end in mind is so critical. And Mm -hmm. that is something I think that hasn't changed with COVID that we can always, when we set out to try to manage our kids' screen time, that the very first place to start is to say, oh my gosh, I may not have thought about this for a while, but where are we headed? What are our family values? And what do I want to be intentionally building in to my children? Whereas like, I think a lot of times we get so distracted and we're overwhelmed. We have no margin. We're just so busy that Mm -hmm. a lot of times these battles end up creeping up and we ended up dealing with the battle. But I'm really excited to talk to you more about what those things can look like and in order to build that infrastructure in our kids, in order to build that compass so that they can have a navigation system throughout the rest of their lives when they're not no longer underneath our our <laughs> own roof and the, you know, Curious George is no longer an option. But before we go there, I would love to hear just you were out talking um, to families about just trying to building these healthy habits from a young age around screen time and trying to limit it, realizing that things like creativity and empathy were at stake for our younger children, as well as our, their brain waves. Then six months ago, (laughs) we COVID hit and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden 
we saw across the globe that screen time use went, it just skyrocketed. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, at, at least two times the amount of screen time as kids were on before COVID. And so how have you noticed that things have changed for parents, for kids? What are you sensing? My, how hasn't it changed? <laughs> you know, one of my biggest talks that I gave was right before COVID hit, and it was at a mega church, and I did three different talks. I did a parent one, a middle school one, and a high school one, because they're also very different. And it's as though everything that I said almost evaporated mm. in a moment, mm. and in my household as well. So I now have a, I had an eighth grader and a sixth grader um, who are now freshmen in seventh grade. And all of a sudden, all of the things that I said, and all the ways that we had personally lived our lives, vanished. We happen to have moved during COVID because that's what you do during a pandemic is you move. And so the way that our new house is for the boys to do their at home learning, they really needed to be in their rooms. Mm -hmm. And then because life, um, we also have a really, really big puppy who loves to, to, to romp into things and grab stuff and, and disrupt the world. And so all of a sudden, in your room with the door closed, um, made the most sense for their Zoom school yeah. weirdness. And the don't look at more than one screen at a time, which is huge for brain development. So don't have your cell phone with you when you're on your computer goes out the window when my high schooler has to figure out how do I log on? This link doesn't work. I need to text my friend who's in the same class. Mm. All of a sudden, like these are just practical things now and it all goes kind of out the window. And it was so hard. It was it was so hard. I've heard you describe it as a, like cognitive dissonance. Like this. Yes. Yeah. This difference between what I expected and what, what I hoped for, for my kids and the reality of the way that the normal is right now. And, and, and cognitive dissonance is like fingernails on a chalkboard of your soul. That's yeah. how I always described it. And, <laughs> yes. yes. And, and so we do things to resolve cognitive dissonance. We do things like we say, uh, well, it's not, it's not really that bad. Or, you know, my kid gets re really good grades and so it's fine. Mm. And the reality is that it really might be fine. If it's short term, it might be fine. If we're checking in on them, it really might be fine. Because for the love, what what else can we do? Like all of a sudden, we don't have a lot of choices. And if our kids can't physically get together, but they can socially game, then do you want to take away their possibility of some sort of interaction? No. Right. Do you like that that is their option? No. But our choices have been limited. And so I think that one of the really important things that we remember, there's a, there's a couple different things. It's still very important to make real life connections. Mm -hmm. And it is completely fine if the only real life connections they get right now are the people who live under their roof. Mm -hmm. There is something amazing to forging deeper family connections. And so while they were doing screen stuff, we were also doing a lot more hands-on stuff. We, But I have the benefit of having a teacher as a husband who was then home. And so he made math lessons in, you know, in real hands-on ways and things like that. 
us and everybody else in the world went out and did a lot of walks. Um, we we had them doing more like recipes with us and, and cooking with us and talking with us. And I don't have like the Von Trapp family that was sitting around singing songs and they were always so excited to do this. <laughs> I mean, we had some eye rolls and we had some I know, you know, and <laughs> so it's not it's not some picture perfect Instagram kind of thing. There was rolling around on the floor and puppy and all of all of the things. Um, but that's also the mess of family and that's okay. Yeah. Um, and, and so knowing like, what can we do to reconnect? Mm-hmm. What, what can we do when they're not staring at the screen to, to have conversations, to have fun, to move things like that. Yeah. And as I'm listening to you, I'm reflecting on how just sometimes the biggest step is just to reframe our perspective and to try to see the opportunity that there is even in the challenge. And that mm-hmm. is a huge first step. I mean, most days I don't even get to that first step, right? Of just seeing what what can we learn? What can we work on here? But really when it comes to screen time, there's never been a more like proximate uh, season where you are so close to your kids while they are on screens for you to have some conversations about exactly what you talked about. If we could just dig in a little bit deeper on how to talk to my kiddo about the relationship between technology and anxiety. I would love for you to walk us through what actually happens in our brain when we are on devices. Well, we're shifting a little bit from devices that are like Zoom and, and, and learning based. So, so we have devices or ways that we use devices where we're getting information in an, in an educational kind of way. But then if we're getting information or we're consuming that device in like in social media or in in texting our friends, then we're using it differently and our brain is responding differently. So every single time there is a a text message or every single time there's a little heart icon on your Instagram feed, you get this little shot of dopamine. Um, and dopamine is this feel-good neurotransmitter that says you found it. It's, It's really this old throwback. I mean, everything's an old throwback neuro, <laughs> neurotransmitter, but it was supposed to be something we got every once in a while. It was supposed to reward us for finding something. Mm-hmm. So it's so fascinating that the way that it was supposed to work is that we had the courage to leave our tribe, go out and find a mate mm-hmm. so that we weren't all inbred. <laughs> or go out and find the herd that we had to kill so that we we had some some protein for the winter or we found a blueberry bush. And these were like big treks, big journeys where we would eventually find something. And when we found it, our brain rewarded us for that with this surge of dopamine. You found it. You did it. Good job. You should be rewarded for that risk taking of leaving and finding and surviving. Hmm. And so it was supposed to be something that was every once in a while. But now, fast forward to our current world, we can get it every second. Every time we refresh our feed, every time we get a a text message, every time we find a meme that's funny, we get that same thing. Um, And what they found in these studies of when we get a whole lot of dopamine, especially the younger we are when our brain is still developing, is that we don't start making less dopamine the brain starts having fewer receptors of dopamine 
called down regulation. We get fewer of these receptors because the brain is overloaded. It doesn't know what to do. It's not supposed to have this much. And so because it can't get less, it makes fewer receptors. Okay. And so the end result then is that when we take that away, we can't absorb as much dopamine. And then we need more. And if we need more, we have to have bigger risks, Mm. bigger thrills on things more in order to feel something. And so we can get into anxiety with not having it, or we can get into anhedonia, which is the like loss of pleasure. Everything's boring. Mm. Everything's boring. Mm -hmm. Why did you go and do that thing? I was bored. Mm. That's really the brain saying I was used to having a ton of dopamine. Now I don't have it. I have to get it. What do I do? Okay. And so this is what we're finding a ton of. And so the way that we deal with that is to do a couple of things. One is to do a survey of your own body and feel like when I get this notification or when I get left out of something, like what what am I feeling? Mm-hmm. Where is it in my body that I'm feeling it? Mm-hmm. And allow ourselves to actually just sit in it and name it and be able to be uncomfortable, even okay. be bored. I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about as an adult how hard that is for me. It's so hard. Because now what's happened has become that whenever something is hard, what do I do? I escape it by picking out my phone and stress scrolling. Mm-hmm. But it works so well. <laughs> <laughs> but this is something that's important for our kids to understand that it's when something does overload our dopamine that we have to sit in it and feel it in our body. Mm-hmm. So maybe that means what, like maybe we've got a headache. Maybe we aren't sleeping well. What does it feel like in our body, Susan? What are some, it, it can be those things. It can be more short lived of mm-hmm. that kind of that like ouch in your, in your heart. Or even that surge, we're like, why am I on this? Mm-hmm. What am I? What am I avoiding? Mm-hmm. And then, kind of taking some deep breaths into that. Okay. And yeah. and really, this this thing is an extension of ourselves now. But what was supposed to be the extension of ourselves are other people. Okay. And so, what I what I try to teach people is that when you have that big feeling, that uncomfortable feeling, what you're supposed to do, what the brain is made to do is to turn towards somebody else. So when we get stressed, we get this little bit of of oxytocin, which is this neurotransmitter that also bonds us to other people. But when we get it in the very beginning of stress, what it's supposed to do is it tells us to turn towards somebody. Mm. And if we allow ourselves to actually, in real life, turn towards another person, mm-hmm. and even to say, like, I need a hug, or I'm having a hard day, or I'm feeling stressed, or high, anything, and that other person responds, we then, our brains then flood us with that oxytocin. Mm-hmm. And, it's when, is it when the other person responds? Is that right? Mm-hmm. So yep. if we turn towards somebody else mm-hmm. and they are not available for us, that's not the same thing. We have to find somebody 
who, right. if they don't respond, then we do not get any more mm. oxytocin. If they do, then we get flooded with it. And its job is to eat all of that stress. The stress hormone is cortisol. So we, we talk about, we've talked before about it being like a Pac-Man that it turns and it eats up all of the, the cortisol in our brains and our bodies. And it helps us feel better. It centers us. Mm-hmm. But what our kids are doing instead is they're going towards their screen. They're feeling that uncomfortable feeling and they're looking at their phone instead. And we do this too. Adults do this too. And it gives us more dopamine, but it does not take down the cortisol, the stress. Yeah. And I- so that cortisol just builds and builds and builds. And what we need to do is turn towards mm-hmm. But we have to hear somebody's voice. We have to see their eyeballs. We have to get some physical touch. All of those three things will give us that oxytocin that will reduce that cortisol. So the thing we have to teach our kids is to keep turning towards, turn towards, turn towards other people. Hear their voice. Texting doesn't do it, unfortunately. Like, it makes us feel heard. Mm -hmm. It's It's not unimportant, Mm-hmm. But the brain hasn't shifted to say that that will do anything neurochemically to us. Got it. So we need, we need voices. We need eyeballs. We need touch. So the conversation with our kids then becomes when something stresses you to choose technology like FaceTime or Zoom or f- good old fashioned phone calls. And the best kind would be just sitting on the couch next to somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And it's important for them to know that we're not trying to say, don't text your friends or don't get on Discord or don't socially game. We're not saying don't do that. We're saying that our, we have to, just like always, we have to find balance. We have to find boundaries. Mm-hmm. And that there are some situations where there are better things to choose. Mm-hmm. And if we're feeling anxious or stressed, you can get, it's very much like an adult saying, if you're really stressed and you drink, you know, two glasses of wine, you're going to feel less stressed physiologically, but it won't have helped your problem. And it might create a bigger one. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the same thing with our technology. Yeah, if you get on and you just game and you're really stressed, it might help you feel less stressed in the moment, but it doesn't solve the problem and it might create a bigger one. So it's a little bit like nutrition. I mean, choosing interactions that give you nutrients versus junk food, empty calories. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> they also give you a sugar high. And <laughs> yeah, because everybody wants the donut. Of course you do. You just can't have the donut for dinner. Yeah. Wow. So good. Okay. Susan, that is so helpful. I'm going to shift us to, <laughs> so this is a throwback to Dear Abby. Do you remember Dear Abby? It was a column that appeared every week in a newspaper where a person would write in <laughs> with a problem that they're experiencing and Dear Abby would respond. So we've actually um, surveyed our listeners and this is a situation that one listener shared with us. They said that we have always held off on allowing our son to play social games like Fortnite or Roblox. But when the pandemic hit, we caved and we let him start playing with his friends. He's 13. So I like that he has some cool factor, but I've also noticed a change in his attitude. He seems Mm. more grumpy 
and even aggressive um, than his normal self, especially after he's spent hours on screens. I even caught him recently sneaking in a game at night when I thought he was sleeping. How do I navigate this? Is there any way to help him be balanced? Is this an all or nothing situation? He's 13. Help. Hmm. (laughs) Well, First thing is he's 13, so the help is just going to feel like that for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Solve the 13. I can't solve 13. Um, the, The important part in that is understanding that it's not necessarily about the platform, the roadblocks, or the Fortnite. And so it's, again, about balance. Hours is too much for the brain. Both of those games are very overstimulating. And the way that you know if something is overstimulating is behavior change. So what I tell my clients and what I do in my home is that as soon as there is a behavior change, so for me, it's like, hey, kiddo, you need to get off. We need to transition towards dinner. And I get this like really irritable or intense response. Then that tells me he's been on too long. It's too much for his brain. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been known to just fold down the computer and say, I said we were done. Mm -hmm. I'm not super nice with letting them get to the end of the game unless when I tell him it's time to get off, he goes, okay, can I finish this up? I think it'll take a couple of minutes. Mm -hmm. And he says it like that. I'm like, sure. Mm -hmm. If he's like, I know, I just got to do this. Then I'm like, nope, Mm -hmm. (laughs) too much. Mm -hmm. And I, I literally will close the computer. And then if he responds, or if they respond too intensely, then that tells me it was too long. And so I tell people like, however long it was, back it up and say, the next time you get to play, you're going to play it for maybe 15 minutes less, maybe 30 minutes less, depending on how long they were doing it. But for a 13-year-old, they should never be doing it for hours. The 13-year-old brain can't handle hours of that much stimulation. So for a 13-year-old, 45 minutes is probably as much as they can handle, and they will be very irritated at that, but they will become more human. Mm-hmm. And then any time they sneak it in the middle of the night, then they automatically lose it for 24 to 48 hours. But then you try again. Yes. Is that right? You don't recommend, yeah. you're not a proponent of like, let's throw everything, all of the games in the lake. Because Um, there's this reality that at some point they're going to go to college (laughs) and they've got to learn how to navigate that, right? Before COVID, I was like, I I actually did not agree with with that sentiment that you just said. I was like, Mm -hmm. let's get as much brain development as possible. Mm -hmm. And so that like they go to college, they have now an 18-year-old brain versus a 13-year-old brain. But now we have COVID and now we have to have some social interaction And so now it is finding the balance of how much, and it is, it just cannot be hours. Mm -hmm. Um, They need, they need breaks. They need to be back in their own body again. They need to move. And so I will take it away from them, but not for more than a couple of days, or we'll do like a week of like a, we're just not doing screens this week. And then it's generally, it's the family. It's not like targeted at one individual. Yeah. And we found in our work just that getting those expectations out ahead of the week can, mm-hmm. they might, they might throw a fit at the beginning, but in general, kids seem to respond a lot better to more clear upfront expectations than like reactions when 
you're panicking in fear that your kid is on a screen too much all of a sudden because, oh, by the way, you've been on your screen too much <laughs> while, right. while he was on his screen. Right. And that kind of setting rhythms and expectations around like, you know, every day at after you've gotten your schoolwork done, you can have a little screen time and then you're going to go outdoors. Um, mm-hmm. And when you can kind of get into those expectations, we'll reduce the battles that we have with our kids. Because if you can be consistent, there's less room to wiggle and argue rather than this kind of slot machine of, oh, maybe today she'll let me play for four hours. I'm not sure. But um, right. Yeah. And, and we do still have expectations in our house where um, you don't socially game during the week. Like you can text your friends. You can call your friends. You can ride your bike over to to their house. We can interact in other ways, but we're not going to get on roadblocks. It just isn't because of the amount of screen time that they're having at school at the moment. That's where we have landed as a family. Mm -hmm. And everybody lands in a little bit of a different place, Mm -hmm. Um, but they have other ways that they're connecting. They can do, they do Dungeons and Dragons and they do it over Discord but it's still different on the brain than, than like playing Roblox. Why is it different? Can you share with us? Um, because it's a more um, imaginative based game where they, they're creating things. They're not doing it on the screen. They're just using the screen to like see one another. Okay. But I presume that in all of these situations, that social pressure, like when you have your boys only social game on the weekends. What does that look like for you during the week? What do those conversations look like? Are, are they getting left behind by friends and the cool factor? How do you navigate that just as a parent? Um, we go we go into different seasons where sometimes it's a big deal and sometimes it's not. And so mm-hmm. they have some friends who have parents who think like we do. And mm-hmm. so that is very helpful. So they, they do more texting with with other people who are like them Mm -hmm. Um, and we talk a lot about what that means like if you're being left out of something is it something that maybe we want you to be left out of Mm -hmm. there are a lot of things i i want you to be left out of and it doesn't feel good to be left out and only in retrospect can you be like i'm glad i was saved from that and so i say things that they don't like like i love your brain too much to let you do this i love that and, and I love your brain enough for you to be mad at me about this. Mm-hmm. But I also talk so much about brain development ad nauseum in my house that they know. <laughs> we know, mom, you love our brain. I know, I know. I love your brain too much to let you do this. Wow. I'm always looking for a good one-liner. Susan, thank you so much. This gives us so much to think about. And oh, it's just a good reminder that anything we're doing is... A lot of times hard. Before you go, can we do one final segment where we do a rapid fire? I'm going to ask you five questions about technology and we'll just see what your thoughts are. Are you ready? Sure. (laughs) All right. Your favorite old school technology. This is the kind that, you know, you now have to explain to your children because it's obsolete. Like an eight track tape. Okay. Fill in the blank. Childhood is a great adventure. Love it. Favorite app? <laughs> Does the Starbucks app count? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and I will send you, I will send you a gift card to that after we are done. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite trick you use to keep your tech in check? Uh, keeping it far away. 
So when I put it downstairs, mm-hmm. um, and I also have nothing fun on my home screen on my home screen on my phone, just things like map and calendar. Love it, reducing the temptation. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Okay, last one. The internet breaks down for twenty four hours. What are you gonna do to unplug? Board games. So fun. You're gonna have to tell us what your favorite one is. Oh, we do Ticket to Ride. Oh, we love that one. I love Ticket to Ride. Um, And then my favorite card game is, let's see if I can get this right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's goat, it's the one that is goat cheese pizza. Taco cat goat cheese pizza. Taco cat goat cheese pizza? Oh, we gotta get together. Let's get together and you can teach us that. Oh, amazing. You throw in a Norwal, it's really good. Oh, my heavens. Now we are so piqued our interest. (laughs) Hey, Susan, thanks so much for joining us. We're really excited to share this episode with our listeners, and we will be in touch. Sounds great. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Krista. Oh, man. Wasn't that good? I just love digging in with you today, friends, on neurobiology and what's happening in our brains with screens and being joined by Susan. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we would love it if you could subscribe to the Screen Sanity podcast on your chosen podcast stream, and maybe even leave us a review of what you enjoyed. And if you're interested in learning more about Start's resources, like our parent programs or our parent guides and bringing them to your own school community, you can visit our website at www.westartnow.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to stay in touch with upcoming events. And until next time, keep taking care of those brains, friends. The world is still a really big world. And screens, well, they're pretty darn small. Keep looking up.